this week on a virtual lively experiment. It's official. August 31st may be the most wonderful day of the year for thousands of parents and most of the kids across Rhode Island. We'll explain why. Plus, what can we learn from the protests here and across the country? A longtime community leader in Providence has some thoughts. A lively experiment is generously underwritten by... For more than 30 years, A Lively Experiment has provided insight and analysis of important political issues that face Rhode Islanders. I'm John Hazen-White, Jr., and I'm proud to support this great program in Rhode Island PBS. Joining us for our Reporters' Roundtable this week, Patrick Anderson, Statehouse reporter for the Providence Journal, Target 12 investigator Steph Machado, and Ian Donis, political reporter for the Publix Radio. Hello, everyone, and welcome. I'm Jim Hummel. Those cheers you heard on Wednesday afternoon may have come from parents, students, and teachers after Governor Raimondo announced her commitment to get everyone back in the classroom when the new academic year begins in the fall, and even with a uniform statewide calendar. Of course, there are an awful lot of details to work out, but it's a positive sign as the state looks to the summer, the fall, and beyond. Uh, Patrick, let me begin with you. I, I'm curious, you check off a lot of boxes in your household. Uh, give me the parents' perspective on this. Well, relief, number one, um, having three months of um, a, a pre-K student at home trying to work, and my wife is a teacher, uh, and she's trying to work at the same time, has been um, really difficult, uh, to put it mildly. So the idea of another six months or so of that was uh, sheer horror. Um, but of course, now it looks like they're going to sample a dip back into the fund of distance learning for what used to be snow days. So that'll give us, we have something to look forward to, to remind us of this happy time um, of, uh, of no in-person school and, uh, and coronavirus maybe uh, look to look forward to next year when it snows. Steph, the details that they talked about already, we're hearing from superintendents, hey, if we have to distance, this is a lot more buses. I'm not sure physically they have enough buses. That's just one of many details they have to work out, right? Yeah, I mean, I think as a lot of parents are breathing this sigh of relief that they're not going to be homeschooling anymore. I mean, of course, the teachers were teaching, but the parents were heavily involved. There's also so many logistics that need to be worked out. The busing is just one, but it's a huge one. Um, if, if the CDC guidelines remain the same, you cannot have the same amount of kids on a bus that you have now. And remember, most of these districts are contracting with outside bus companies. They don't have their own internal um, buses. So this could involve renegotiating the contracts with those bus companies. How do we get triple the buses? Who's going to pay for that? Um, we do know that there's going to be um, funding from the state for specific coronavirus-related expenses that's separate from the funding formula state aid that normally goes to the schools. But I think there's just going to be so many logistics to work out from how many students can be in a classroom, how many teachers can be in a classroom, what do you do if a teacher's immunocompromised, if a student's immunocompromised, if a student gets sick, does the whole class get quarantined? So there's just... I think it was exciting news for a lot of people that school's going to be in person this year, but the logistics are massive and I think all need to be figured out. 
And Ian, of course, there's the unions involved because I heard the commissioner say at the press conference Wednesday, well, maybe we just have to work a longer day to catch up and things like that. There's going to have to be a lot of give and take with the unions and, and just a lot of compromise, I would think, right? Yeah, absolutely. And Commissioner Infante Green was pretty upbeat about how that's going. I mean, she, according to her, the whole coronavirus situation has fostered a lot more cooperation across different districts and statewide. Whether union leaders might have something different to say about that is possible. But, you know, the only thing that's really clear is we don't know when there will be an effective treatment or vaccine for the coronavirus. It probably makes plans to go ahead with the resumption of normal school as the governor announced. If there is a deterioration in the situation, it's easier to pull back than to do the opposite, to start with a plan of not resuming normal schools and then to ramp that up. So yeah, I think a lot of people are excited about this. And, and as Steph said very well, many, many details still to be worked out. Well, it sounds like a uh, you know it sounds like they have a lot of time August thirty first, but that's really only you know two and a half months away with a lot of details. So we'll definitely ch- keep on that uh, in the weeks to come. A uh, lot to talk about with the protests going on. A lot of focus downtown, the big protest, and that uh, and then we had the riots two weeks ago. Now the focus is on the police and the whole issue of the phrase defund the police which runs the spectrum of what that could be. Steph, let's start out with you on this. You were at the, uh, or you uh, <laughs> you dropped in on the meeting last night at the Providence uh, Finance uh, Council, and they've had some stops and starts with Zoom. Tell us what you saw and what the feeling was from the people. I'm sure it ran the gamut. Yeah, so this was, and you know, I should say, we're taping this on a Thursday morning, so this was just last night. Like, I probably published my story like eight hours ago. Um, they had a very lengthy late into the night meeting. And the, I think a lot of people were surprised when the agenda got posted and it actually said, we're going to discuss defunding the police, um, which is something that activists have been calling for, but maybe isn't as mainstream among the elected officials. Um, and so they did, they did, they had uh, community members talk about their experiences with police brutality and racism and why they thought, many of them thought policing should be abolished, but I think they understood the more realistic um, option was to ask for money to be shifted within the budget. For example, can we spend less on, you know, riot gear and ammunition and more on mental health? And so um, that's what they're asking for. And they're asking the police and the elected leaders to understand where they're coming from. And it was emotional. It was powerful. They had personal stories. um, But the city council, the city council president said right out of the gate, that's not something, defunding the police altogether is not something that I'm interested in. So obviously she holds a lot of sway. I think yeah. there are gradations of that then, right? Yeah, there's no, they're not getting rid of the Providence Police Department. That isn't happening. But I think the question of, you know, in fact, reform, and they spent a lot of time at the meeting talking about reform. How do we change things at the police department? How do we, you know, uh, the chairman, John Igliosi, was like, maybe we need more funding for intervention and de-escalation training. So that would be increasing funding or at least maybe shifting funding around in the budget rather than decreasing funding. But he also suggested afterwards, maybe we cut the police academy this year. Do we need 50 new officers? Maybe we need 20. I think that's going to raise some eyebrows from folks who say, well, wait a minute, the police academy is bringing in more diverse and younger officers So is that the right thing to cut? So they're already in a huge budget crunch this year. And I think uh, in other years, it would be, you know, even harder to 
convinced them to decrease funding to the police department. This year, they're trying to decrease spending across the board. So perhaps they cut a small nominal amount from the police department, but I, you know, certainly the budget year starts in three weeks. So I don't think we're looking at some massive um, budget change, but just the fact to me, just the fact that they had this conversation and they had it very seriously. It wasn't, you know, it didn't seem like they were just paying lip service to the activists. It was a very serious conversation. They went, you know, they went through multiple budget lines, asked questions about it. Of course, the chief and the commissioner, felt and the union president felt very strongly they need every penny in their budget the chief said we're paper thin and listen 90 more than 90 percent of the police budget is salaries and benefits so if you're talking about cutting the police budget you're talking about cutting potentially personnel in some ways i think we might be doing better in rhode island than in some other states i mean the providence police department is vastly better than it was 20 years ago when it was very uh, politicized and scandal plagued under Buddy Cianci. Hugh Clements is a responsive leader who recognizes the need to listen to the community with the state police. We've seen how Governor Raimondo has pushed for more diverse cadets to be added. Uh, at the same time, there's always room for improvement, and there does, you know, there's uh, there should always be accountability when it comes to police. One of the big questions now is what happens with the Law Enforcement Officer Bill of Rights, which was created in the 1970s, backed by police unions to protect police officers. Critics across the ideological spectrum from conservatives to liberals say it does too much to impede accountability. Now the legislature is gonna take a look at that. That's not gonna happen this summer. It's something that will happen going forward, but you know, hopefully there are some areas of compromise that could be uh, things done to improve accountability and make police uh, additionally responsive. And if I could add one more thing to that, um, at the meeting last night, Commissioner Perry had a little bit of a moment when he said that the officer who's charged with killing George Floyd in Minneapolis, if that had happened in Providence, that he would not have been able to fire that officer because of the Law Enforcement Officers Bill of Rights. And that got a little bit of a reaction saying, geez, you can't even fire someone who does that. And Patrick, that- you, Patrick, you had a great article specifically on the Law Enforcement Officers Bill of Rights, tracing the history back to the early 70s. Tell us a little bit. Can you flesh that out a little bit about uh, just where you think it's going to go? And as Ian said, it's probably going to be for the long run rather than the short term, if there are any changes, right? Yeah, the, the politics historically are pretty impossible and I, and I think remain really challenging. I mean, you, you could have the theoretical progressive uh, Republican alliance on an issue like this. But those things never seem to really materialize, even when there's agreement on kind of the right and left. In Rhode Island, the center usually holds, and that's usually, um, you know, the the more conservative Democrats in in the legislature. Um, And I think with with this, one, one other piece of context is that the, on defund the police, the budget um, is budgets are probably going to be cut regardless uh, across the board uh, to some extent because of the coronavirus problem. Um, so I don't know if you if you have people uh, suggesting that uh, these cuts are that might happen are going to be um, something that puts us in the right direction uh, toward toward something better or not. 
I mean, one other thing, they, the Senate is doing a study committee on the law enforcement officer's bill of rights. That is, has not also not necessarily been a sign that change is coming when an, when an issue um, is given to a study committee. Um, I mean, sometimes it does, but you know, I think in things like marijuana legalization uh, being one example, they, it can be study committee for years and years and years and, and get no closer to an actual change. Well, the protests uh, both here and across the country have brought a, attention to a lot of things about race and equity, housing. And of course, there was that big protest last uh, Friday with uh, 10,000 people in Providence. I caught up with commu- longtime community leader Kobe Dennis. Many of you know him. He's been a panelist on Lively. He ran for uh, mayor and he has been quietly working. And I thought, why haven't I heard from Kobe? Well, I had an interview with him earlier this week. It's his first public comment since all of this has been going on. And it was very interesting. I, was, I had a hard time whittling down because we talked for about 15, 20 minutes. But here's Kobe Dennis. He talks about bad apples, as we talk about on police forces, police in general in Rhode Island, the protests, and then what you should think about when you hear the term Black Lives Matter. Here's a little bit of my interview with Kobe Dennis. The bad apple analogy has it's been, you know, driving me crazy, Jim, because, um, you know, it's more than a few bad apples. It's, it's a systemic problem. And I believe um, that we continue to get rid of these, you know, these few bad apples, per se, and we keep replacing them with more bad apples. You know, it has to come from, I guess, if we're going to continue on with the apple analogy, is that, you know, where the apples are shined and washed and, all, and, and, and ready for packaging and all that. It has to start there. You know, it has to start with the sorters. It has to start um, in the beginning stages of policing. It can't happen when they're on the job. Once they're in that stage with FTO and all that, they get paired with that bad apple. And then here we go. We got a rookie, no matter black, Spanish, I don't care what culture they are they're going to turn in, in, into the same system that, that has been plaguing us for so many years. There are a lot of municipalities and there are a lot of law enforcement officers statewide that do a great job. And I see them all the time. I probably talk to a police officer every day, at least one, from all over the state. Rhode Island has never taken part as a, as a, as a collective in something like this before. Never. And I've been in every march that has been from Trayvon Martin now to, to George Floyd. And believe me, Block Island, Wakefield, Barrington, <laughs> I mean, I'm, I was like, you know, a proud father that, man, people are stepping up and standing out. When you hear Black Lives Matter, you see these signs, to me, your response should be, they actually do. They do matter. And I should, whoever you are, I don't care if you're black, white, Asian, I don't care what nationality you are, you should be able to see that and not cringe or not say, oh, God, what is this? Or they're a terrorist group or all these other things. No, you should be able to see a Black Lives Matter sign and say, you know what? I'm glad folks are standing up for themselves. So one of the reasons uh, Dennis said that he held back was is that he wanted to let some of the younger people take the mantle. I mean, he's not that old, but he's seen an awful lot of protests. Ian, what struck me is you and I have seen a lot of protests going back many years Nothing like this, but always the question is, will this translate into something? Do you get the vibe that this is different from previous protests? Yeah, and that's really the big question, Jim. When this situation first came up, I thought, 
of something that happened back in 2000, the death of Cornell Young Jr., who was an African-American Providence police officer who intervened while off-duty in a late-night dispute and was shot dead by some white colleagues who did not realize he was one of their fellow police officers. At the time, 20 years ago, this sparked a big movement to try and address some of the concerns about race and law enforcement. Uh, Lincoln Amon was governor at the time. There was a commission that came up with a set of recommendations, mostly having to do with police and use of force in situations. But, you know, as we know in America, a lot of times there's a level of upset when bad things happen and then it kind of fades away. Now there's this unprecedented cross-racial movement with the aspiration of a more just society. And the question remains, how do people translate activism into specific goals? I mean, you know, with the law, law off, excuse me, the law enforcement officers bill of rights, that's one specific. So I think the obligation is really for activists to uh, pinpoint some specific goals as far as addressing these issues and, and staying on the case. But yeah, it was very impressive. That big rally at the State House last Friday was primarily organized by high school students from Central High. And that uh, the Black Lives Matter chapter in Rhode Island stepped back because they wanted the young people to let them have their own say and have their moment. And that level of energy was really undeniable. Yeah, so far, it's this protest has been um, you know, very powerful and, and emotional. There hasn't been a specific policy focus, um, which is which is a strength. But that also is a is a difficult transition to make to translate um, the very uh, broad. Um, themes and ideas that people are are marching about and decide what specifics are really going to make uh, a change and you know an example of, of the challenge is a lot of the uh, ideas and and policy priorities uh, that rep Anastasia Williams um, proposed as a solution to a lot of uh, the police uh, issues were not bills that she's even put in this year um, and, and haven't been legislation for several years. Um, so they're, they're, really, they're really kind of starting from scratch in trying to translate this into actual uh, policy. Yeah, and I think, as you said, Patrick, there's not, you know, we have a lot of activism and a lot of uh, power and a lot of momentum in this movement. But last night, for example, there wasn't a lot of asks from the community members they want to abolish the police they want to defund the police but which budget line items would you cut and i think that's what still needs to be proposed and still needs to be figured out when you talk about defunding but what are we defunding which parts of the budget so there hasn't what been a lot of specificity is there, yeah is there, is there something if you if you did remove some of the law enforcement uh elements do you have something else that you can put in place whether it's social workers, mental health workers, is there something else that would respond to some of these calls or, or do some of the work that is now included in the police bundle uh, in, in most communities? Right, exactly. Ian? 
Yeah, absolutely. And and Rep. Williams did have a, she did have some specific proposals when she did a news conference outside the State House about a week ago. Patrick and I were there. But, you know, uh, Speaker Mattiello was asked for his reaction. He was noncommittal. And Speaker Mattiello has opposed some of the things that Representative Williams was seeking, like driver's licenses for undocumented residents. So, uh, you know, whether this is just a fig leaf to be out there asking for this stuff or whether it actually happens is two separate questions. And momentum is momentum so important. And the General Assembly is reconvening next week for the first time in months, potentially for a very short time. And so if something, you know, if it's if it's next year before this is discussed, will the momentum from the movement be the same? We don't really know. I do want to talk about the budget, but let's do this. I don't want to short you on outrages, so let's do that, and then we'll get back into the budget a little bit. Patrick, let's begin with you. Do you have an outrage or a kudo this week? Well, a mini outrage, the the General Assembly um, is looking at reducing the signature requirements to get uh, on the ballot um, for Congress, not for their own uh, offices. Um, and this is in response to coronavirus, obviously uh, standing out in parking lots or going door to door, collecting signatures in person could be an issue um, for spreading the virus. Um, but they decided that, the, that, that this change to reduce the burden um, should only be for uh, U.S. senators and representatives um, and, and not for anyone who potentially could be challenging incumbents. Um, and I thought that was an interesting choice. And I don't know if, if that's entirely uh, motivated by public health or not. We will see. Ian, what do you have this week? Uh, you know, like a lot of people, my wife and I were glued to cable news when the disturbances were recently happening across America. That's the value of cable news. They have reporters in a lot of cities and can take you to the scene. But regardless of which station you're talking about, whether it's CNN, MSNBC, or Fox, these stations are dominated by opinion shows, people spouting rhetoric from various viewpoints, and it just kind of poisons the well. I mean, there are real reporters at these stations who do some valuable reporting, but the focus seems to be just on these talking heads, these opinion-based shows, and I don't think it really serves a valuable purpose. Yeah, it blurs the line. Steph, what do you have for us this week? You know, I forgot to come up with something in advance, but I will say I Tuesday night I was completely outraged by a bunch of folks that decided to crash a public hearing. And maybe we were going to talk about this um, on the Providence budget and just say the most vile, racist, horrible things out loud to the city council members in this meeting. It was terrible. And it just I sat there for a while to say, how are there people in this world and other trolls? But that can even say those words and say them into the faces of this diverse council. It was just awful and outrageous. Yeah, yeah, and I also, it's a thing, it may be another topic for another week, but how, if city councils and town councils are going to have to go forward virtually, I mean, it's a real incentive to get back into the chamber. But if you have to do this, the whole Zoom bombing and everything else, it's uh, it, it provides a lot of challenges. All right, we have about five minutes left. Let's talk about the Rhode Island budget. The legislature, as you alluded to, is getting back into session next week. Ian, we, well, actually, let's start with Patrick. You're up at the State House. So it appears to me from going to a lot of the governor's uh, daily briefings, 
she's really hedging on the government coming through because you really there's only so much you can save on paper clips, right, to balance the budget. Yeah, right now it's it's in Jack Reed we trust. Um, she <laughs> is is waiting for, and I think governors in state houses across the country are waiting for Congress uh, to act again and provide more aid. Um, this time, aid that they can use to to plug their budgets. Um, so they're they're going to um, do a, a budget cleanup for the the year that we're in. That's also bleeding red ink um, and then uh, they're going to wait to do the annual budget for the year ahead it, it, to sometime in July. Usually that's done uh, before the end of June and they're going to wait and see what comes out of Washington and whether there is another large stimulus bill. It looks like there will, but you know we don't know yet and they're going to do that instead of slashing uh, the budget and then potentially getting that aid and having to put the pieces back together. Patrick's exactly right. I mean, this is why the decision making on the budget for the next fiscal year, which starts July 1st, is being put off until mid or late July. Uh, more in the immediate sense, the supplemental budget for the current year will be dealt with. That's a deficit of about $240 million. That is not seen as a particularly big challenge. The state has muddled through in the past with things like scooping money from different agencies. They might use the rainy day fund. Uh, use There's a little bit of flexibility on education funding with some of the federal coronavirus aid. So the short-term budget situation is not that difficult. The big question is, how does the state bring to heel the deficit of about 600 to $700 million for the next fiscal year, and whether the federal government will come to the rescue of states like Rhode Island? But Steph, that means, that means a lot of the issues get put to the side. It's really all budget, right? I mean, we've been up there for the, for the gun rallies, and it was abortion last year, and all these various things. With the exception of just a few pieces of legislation, that seems to get all swept to the side this year. Right. I mean, at the beginning of the session, we talk about all these different priorities that folks have. Um, they ha I mean, listen, they have a very short period of time to pass a small number of bills. There are two gun bills um, that look like they'll make it through a ban on ghost guns and a bill having to do with um, gun applications that came out of the Westerly shooting um, that happened earlier this year. But uh, other than that, we're not looking at a ton of bills. You know, I think all of us, though, as reporters, are going to keep a very watchful eye on the committee agendas and the floor agendas because they can add bills at the drop of a hat and they can add hearings at the drop of the hat, as we, Patrick, of course, and Ian have seen many times at the end of the session. Um, so we'll certainly be watching for what legislation they um, decide to pass in addition to the budget, but it's, it's all about the budget right now. Um, and I want to point out that the news about them coming back and doing the budget and pushing off the FY21 budget came out on Friday in the middle of the protests. So people huh. might have missed it. I missed the email. It was one of several Friday sort of news dumps that came out when there was other big news happening in the city of Providence. I don't think we, I think our entire newscast was focused on the protests. And so a lot of news. So there's sort of some catching up to do um, in terms of getting information out to the public and, and on their radar about the budget and other and other things going on, but this is obviously a big one. It's a ton of money. Well, there might not be bills. They can put a lot of things in the budget, so you always have to watch out. They can. There's a lot of flexibility and, and history uh, doing that. 
Just uh, 30 seconds left, Ian. There's been a lot of criticism. The legislature's been on the sideline. The governor's been taking the reins on this, and there's arguments on either side. What do you think about the legislature, legislature waiting this long to get back into session? Well, as we said earlier, the big question is what happens with federal aid. So I understand the Republicans wanted to come back sooner. More issues could have been taken up, but the same question would have remained about where does the money come from for the FY21 budget? And do you proceed with a lot of draconian cuts while the outlook is still uncertain, or do you wait to get an answer on whether there's more federal relief? All right, folks, I'm sorry. It's a quick 30 minutes, but thank you for joining us virtually this week. Steph and Patrick and Ian, we will see you out on the street. And thank you for joining us. We love being back here with Lively. We appreciate your watching. Come back next week. You never know what's going to happen over the next seven days. Come back next week as a Lively experiment continues. Have a good week, everybody. Experiment is generously underwritten by. For more than 30 years, a lively experiment has provided insight and analysis of important political issues that face Rhode Islanders. I'm John Hazen White Jr., and I'm proud to support this great program and Rhode Island PBS.